Oh, we're recording. (laughs) Hey guys, I'm Caroline. And I'm Natalie. And we're Easily Distracted, a weekly podcast where no topic is too off topic. This week, Natalie will be talking about Henry III and I'll be talking about endangered and dead languages. Let's get into it. His name's Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to episode four. Welcome. Welcome here and everyone. Or what's the hear ye? Hear ye. Please welcome. <laughs> welcome to episode to the four. Stage. <laughs> oh man. Long time no see. Okay. I saw you like three days. Wait, no. Last weekend. Yeah. Four days ago. Five days ago. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> What have you been up to since I've seen you? (laughs) I mean, uh, yes, that as if we haven't been texting all the time, but... I know, as if we haven't FaceTimed every single day, but whatever. So, what have I been doing? I need to even think about what I did this week. Oh, well, mom's here, obviously. She's in the background. So... We've been doing a bunch of stuff, hanging out. She got here Thursday morning. So literally between you guys leaving on Monday morning and her getting here Thursday morning, I had two and a half days of Two and a half days of solitude. Of doing nothing, yeah. Which (laughs) wasn't even two and a half days of doing nothing because I still did stuff. But what did I do? Nobody knows because I don't know. Well, I've just been super lazy and all I've been doing is playing a lot of The Sims. The Sims. But yeah, Sims you know four. Why does it crack you up that I say the Sims? <laughs> it's like the Facebook, the Walmart. Like it's somebody be like, oh, Ohio State University. <laughs> <laughs> it's like somebody be like, oh, I'm headed down to the malt shop on Fifth Avenue. That's what you sound like. I feel like that's a normal thing to say, the Sims. No, okay, this is just like when you said, I have anastigmatism. <laughs> No matter how many times I get corrected, I don't know what it is. Is it N astigmatism? Is it no, A stigmatism? No, is it you astigmatism? Have a, you have astigmatism. We got into a whole thing about this last week because Natalie keeps saying, I have an astigmatism. An astigmatism. Like, no, you have astigmatism. You don't say, like, I have an flu. You have the <laughs> flu. Actually, that just went the against flu, my- aka the sims. <laughs> I was gonna say that just went against my whole argument of saying just astigmatism. You don't say I have sims. You say I have these sims. You got sims. I got sims. <laughs> it was almost. It could have been like Simception because I was playing The Sims while you were watching my location on your phone and i am the as little your sim. little sim yeah because i always look at my friends locations and they're my little sims but mainly just natalie's location because i mainly look at your location so that if i'm like oh i want to call natalie i don't have to be like oh she's at starbucks and i'm gonna get hung up on like i can just know that you're home and i can call you and there's no issues <laughs> But you always do it in the creepiest way where you text me, how's your breakfast sandwich? When you see me going through the breakfast sandwich drive-thru. <laughs> or, yeah, literally the other day, I was just like, hi. And then I was like, oh, you're at Starbucks. Okay, never mind. Like, <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I was just saying I've been playing a lot of Sims. I've, my current project, because I always like, 
I don't actually play The Sims. I just or I stop saying play, The Sims. I don't actually play Sims. I that sounds so weird. No, it say, doesn't. It sounds normal. Okay, <laughs> I just like building, and I pick different building projects yeah. to do. So I have like one game where all I do is houses from TV shows and movies, and I have one game. This is the one I'm currently working on where I'm just building townhouses. I like that one. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of fun. So last night, Natalie, um, well, I was having, I was laying in bed having a lot of anxiety. And so I texted Natalie because I was just anxious and it was in the middle of the night. And of course, Natalie was like, yeah, what's up? I'm playing Sims. What's going on? <laughs> and it, it was, was like 3 a.m. Because <laughs> I was laying there thinking about what if there's a fire in my apartment and I have to escape. And Natalie just goes, there's going to be no fire. Don't worry. Here, look at my sim houses. And I she sent you videos of And then you fell asleep and didn't even respond. I was like, wow, I did too good of a job. I should have kept her a little anxious. <laughs> I know, because then I fell asleep. Yeah. And the whole time I was playing, I was listening to um, this playlist on Spotify called Hobbit Core. And oh so my, my vibes were really good last night. <laughs> Have you watched Lord of the Rings since that came on Netflix? No. I didn't even know it was on Netflix, actually. Yeah. it just I think it just came on kind of recently. I go through, like, I think throughout the year, I go through different types of binges of, like, trilogies or, like, just did a Hunger Games binge where I watched all mm, of the Hunger yep. Games um, movies and then watched every possible TikTok on the analysis of Hunger Games that you could hear. Like, literally, we finished watching the movie and Kian looks over at my phone and he's like, are you watching a Hunger Games analysis video? And I'm like, yeah. What else would I be doing after watching the There's movie? so many good Hunger Games analysis There's videos so on TikTok. There's so many good ones. And so I do that. And then I also have like a Harry Potter binge during the year. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings is one of them. Two years ago when we had COVID, I watched – we watched all of the Lord of the Rings like in a row basically – not like Damn. like not right in a row, but like we watched one and then we like an hour later we were like, okay, let's watch the next one. And then like that's like a two big days time later. Commitment. I've really been wanting to watch like the uncut versions, like the full. I think each one is like four hours long or something crazy. Oh my god, I didn't even know there was those. Oh yeah, you can watch like the full, um, like uncut versions. I don't know if that's the right word. Uncut, director's edition, whatever. I'm not sure. Like, uh, maybe we'll edit this out. Uncut makes me think of circumcision. I was going to say that too, but I wasn't going to say it. It's the uncircumcised version of... (laughs) 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 But yeah, I need to to do a Lord of the Rings rewatch because I've been like really into um, this like Hobbit Core playlist and it's making Mm -hmm. me want to... I've also been trying to listen to the audiobooks. Um... And I just I'm having a hard time getting into them because the mm-hmm. the narrator's voice is almost like too good. He like kind of puts me to sleep. Puts you to sleep. Yeah, it's just very relaxing. Yeah. You've been into a lot of cozy stuff recently. I have been. I've been really on the cozy vibe lately. Yeah, probably because like of it, all though. the snow. I'm oh, like, oh yeah, sick of the snow, and I feel like it just makes me feel like sunshine to mm-hmm. have all the cozy stuff. Feels well, also, like, there. when it's like that, you want to feel all cozy and have mm-hmm. the comforting things surrounding you. Oh, okay. Speaking of comforting things, um, I've also lately been binging old TV shows that I like. Mm-hmm. And I know I texted you about this, but I'm going to repeat it again. I finished As Told by Ginger, finally, because I was re-watching As Told by Ginger. Did we already talk about this on the podcast? Not on the podcast, but we were texting about it. See, the lines are blurring because I don't remember what, when, where, why we've talked about anything. 
I don't. Did we talk about it on the podcast? I like feel like we did talk about this. Can somebody let us know if we've talked about this? Because I thought we did. Fact <laughs> check us. Not. Yeah, somebody, somebody tell us that because I I feel like you did, but if not, keep going. Well, I was just gonna say I decided today that my next show is gonna be Lizzie McGuire. Ooh, that's a good one. What's it on? Oh, Disney Plus. Disney Plus. Yeah. Because yeah, I had previously, before I was told by Ginger, I watched all of Braceface. And that oh. was a really good one to rewatch. Braceface? Bra- I said Braceface? Braceface? <laughs> Brace. Oh my God. Okay, you know, just on the same thought, side tangent, <laughs> but literally, mom, earlier today, we were, not today, maybe last night, we were talking about, um, we were at the grocery store getting stuff to make dinner the other night. Mm-hmm. And, um, we were like, oh, we need Parmesan. And she was like, was it you who couldn't say Parmesan for the longest time? And that made me think, what? Me, wait, you don't remember this? I could not no. pronounce Parmesan. <laughs> oh, my God. For an embarrassing long, embarrassingly long time. Oh, my God. I could, I would say Parmesan. Like, dead, <laughs> dead serious. Like, yes, I'm I not even kidding. This? I would say Parmesan. Like, fully serious. <laughs> I don't remember this at all. Just like Herbergeon? How freaking embarrassing is that? I for like a long time, like the last oh time I remember gosh. doing it was ninth grade. Girl. <laughs> yeah, literally I would say Permagern. The the funny the reason we're laughing is because Caroline does not have like any excuse to say no. Permagern. I just You don't I, have a speech impediment. You don't have any kind of like learning disability or anything you just couldn't say that one word no I literally just and it was just that it wasn't even like any word with like that type of pronunciation would mess with me permagern I just could not I just (laughs) said oh no oh my god I'm gonna revert I'm literally gonna revert back it triggered you going back literally oh my god oh my gosh no you can't no, no. okay let's move on so i don't start saying it again <laughs> okay well that was like all i've done i just <laughs> my second thing wasn't even that i started watching it it was just i decided i'm gonna watch lizzie mcguire oh it was just the decision I didn't even start i you just, just wanted to share with me the decision that you were I gonna made start a decision <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny that's i mean literally i think i told you this the other day too that i lose like all sense of like decision-making abilities when somebody else is around me because I'm like my brain physically cannot make any more decisions like Mm -hmm. I make them all on my own every day so like when somebody else is around I'm like I don't know (laughs) I don't know if I should use a fork or a spoon like you tell me decision fatigue it's a thing yeah it is so oh another thing too I started listening to a new podcast a podcast within a podcast but it's called cozy club and it just Again, like another Cozy Vibes thing. Yeah, see, you've been on the Cozy Vibes. Yeah, their first episode was really cute where they were recommending books, and now I want to read all those books. Yeah, that's always good to get new book recommendations, especially because they're different, too. They're, like, more Mm -hmm. fantasy, right? Yeah, there's some that are, like, kind of more fantasy. Nice. But my to-be-read list is way too long right now. I, like, literally... I make mine a physical stack on my nightstand so that I can like kind of keep track oh, of right, which Oh, right, because I forgot you don't have you don't have a a Kindle. I do have a Kindle. I just don't use it as much. Oh. I really like physical books. 
Yeah. Or audiobooks. I do listen to a lot of audiobooks. Which right now I'm kind of on like an audiobook lull because mm-hmm. I haven't listened to one. Let me look up what the last one I listened to was. See, I'm not a big audiobook person because the only times that I can really focus on an audiobook is when I'm driving. And I just like that I don't drive long distances that often. Like my drive to work is 20 minutes. So I'm not going to mm-hmm. listen to I mean, I guess I could. It's not useless to listen to 20 minutes of an audiobook. That's how I got started. Yeah, that's true. I just like listen to Taylor Swift driving to work and I'm like <laughs> like that's kind of I don't have the mental capacity to listen to a book yeah my last book that I listened to was Spare um which was right before our first episode actually I finished it yeah yeah and I pay for Audible so I get a credit every month I probably have a couple credits built up oh yeah then you definitely do I only listen to audiobooks with British narrators because I cannot <laughs> stand American voice actors I don't know why, but I don't like it. I can't listen to books read by uh, an American voice actor. British only. British only. Which kind of actually goes along with my topic. I realize that this is King Richard III, not Henry, which is my topic this week. (laughs) Why? Who who allowed me to write Henry? I would love to know. Who fact-checked that? that? Who did that? I didn't do that. that? Who did that? (laughs) But it's my second British-related topic. See, that was a good segue into your topic, but we're starting with my topic, so. We got to keep it even. We're sisters, so it's like we got to precisely cut things in half if we're splitting them. We got to keep it very even of switching back and forth between topics. We would always do that where it was always other sisters or siblings can probably relate where if you had something you were splitting, whoever cut it in half, the other person got to pick their half first. Yep. To keep it fair. To because, keep you honest. Yes, to keep it fair. Because if you cut one side bigger and then you take that side bigger while whilst being the cutter, unfair. It is. You know where I actually got that from? I stole that from a book I read growing up. Stole what? That that whole idea. I came up. I stole that from a book I read. You don't invent that. I didn't invent it. I, I'm just saying like. We got the idea to do that from a book that we read. What book? Well, I read. Uh, it was a pirate book. Oh, but that's what? what like that's what the like <laughs> urchin children did. Or... Urchin? I don't know. What's the word? You for mean it? merchant? No, no, no. What are like the little kids who live on the street? Urchin? <laughs> that's not. What Is urchin not a word? <laughs> like urchin? Like the. Fish? Wait, not a fish. The- <laughs> is an urchin a fish? <laughs> no. Okay. Urchin. Urchin are the pokey things in like. Oh, you're right. A mischievous. It's an urchin. urchin. A mischievous young child, especially one who is poorly or raggedly dressed. Yes, the urchin children used to do that in the pirate book I read. I literally did not know that was a word until right now. Oh, this is a good segue into my topic. Yes, I wrapped it back around to me. Because <laughs> we're keeping it even and you're going first this week. <laughs> okay, so this is a good topic or segue. I just, I literally just commandeered that whole thing to go towards me. Do it, do it, but, do it. <laughs> so when Natalie was here last weekend on our um, Instagram, if anybody follows us, we were posting how we were at Planet Word, which is a museum in DC. It was and super it's cool. all about, yeah, it was really fun. So it's all about language and words and it's super interactive. So it was really fun. So it just got me thinking about languages and I kind of forgot that there was endangered and even dead languages. So it made me want 
to learn more about it. Sweet. So let's get into it. Okay, uh. so <laughs> we're feeling extra funky and silly today. I just wanted to mock you for doing that last episode. Oh! <laughs> I just Why would I do that? Oh! <laughs> okay 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 so starting my topic now as of 2022 there are 7,151 languages spoken around the world and every 40 days one of those languages dies what yeah wow that's a lot of languages to die wait now i kind of want to extrapolate that out and see how many years that would take to for all i'm coming up with it don't worry i don't need to do math okay No, I have the math already done. (laughs) So among those about 7,000 languages, only 23 of them are predominantly spoken by half of the world's population. Wow. Which is insane. So in order, those top languages are English, Mandarin, Chinese, Hindi, and Spanish that are predominantly spoken around the world. And then obviously a bunch of other ones, but those are the top spoken languages in the world. You should have quizzed me because I bet I would have been able to guess those. Oh, damn it. (laughs) Well, sorry. But so a third of those languages are considered endangered. And most linguists estimate that 50% of the world's languages will be gone by the end of the century. Wow. And on the more extreme side, some linguists estimate that actually 90% of today's languages will die by 2115. So less than 100 years. We won't live to see it, though. RIP. No, we probably won't. So languages can be classified into a couple of different ways. Living, endangered, dead, and extinct. So obviously living is like English, Spanish, Hindu. Like I said earlier, those are their living speaking languages that people use every day. So an endangered language is one that is likely to become extinct in the future. Its speakers have a different dominant language that is now being used and their language might not be passed on for the next generation to use. So a dead language is one that has no native speakers anymore, but it might still be spoken or learned. So a really popular example of this is, what do you think? Latin. Yes, sir. So still, since Latin is still learned and even sometimes used, it's considered that, but there are no native speakers of that language. So an extinct language is even worse. It's one that has no native speakers and is no longer spoken or learned at all. Wow. So how do languages become endangered or extinct? So there can be a lot of different ways that this can happen, obviously. But some of the most common reasons are often political, economic, or cultural in nature. So there can be political persecution or a lack of preservation of a language that causes it to dwindle. So an example of this, of the economic reasons, could be that a parent decides it's better for their children to speak a language that is tied to economic success in their area. So many second-generation immigrant children end up not speaking their parents' native language because it's more economically savvy for them to speak the language that is being predominantly used in their area they now live in. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So that happens a lot in America. Obviously, that happened a lot with migrants who came to America. And of course, it was more economic for them to speak English than keep their native language. So another example of this is when speakers of a language find themselves under political pressure to integrate with a larger or more powerful group. 
meaning that they have to get rid of their culture or and language, such as when this ethnic group, the Kurds in Turkey, um, they were and still mainly are forbidden by law, by Turkish law, to teach their language in schools. And that's, they still aren't allowed. I think it's become better now, but from what I saw, it's still forbidden in a lot of schools to speak the language. Yeah. Wow, that's bonkers. So language becoming endangered can also occur because of big events that wipe out the speakers of that language, such as genocide, disease, or even a natural disaster. Mm. So this isn't as common as like the natural um, gradual degradation of a language, but it's becoming a lot, yeah, a lot more frequent because of climate change. Yeah. Oh my God. You're so smart. It's it's becoming a theme. We're secretly a climate change podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Fooled you guys. (laughs) But yeah, so as climate change causes more disasters, this is going to happen a lot more often. And I could go on to a whole side tangent about this, which I was thinking about. I could do that for our side tangent if we wanted to for this episode, because so many um, of these small languages are spoken from islands. Oh. Mm-hmm. Or coastal cities or in that kind of thing. So hmm. um, actually, here's a quote. A quote from Anastasia Real. She is the director of the Strathy Language Unit at the Queen's University. She said, many small linguistic communities are on islands and coastlines vulnerable to hurricanes and sea level rise. Other live on lands where the rising temperatures threaten traditional farming and fishing practices, prompting migration. When climate change comes in, it disrupts communities even more. It has a multiplier effect. The final nail in the coffin. Wow. It's so crazy because I feel like when people talk about climate change, the primary thing people talk about is just like temperature rises and like the amount of people who would be displaced and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But like, you don't talk about these little like nuances of how it affects culture yeah. very often. Because there there are so many little nuances of what make us humans and what make culture. Mm-hmm. And language is like the cornerstone of different cultures yeah. because it's such a central part of your identity, the language that you speak. Mm-hmm. Well, in communication and like passing down mm-hmm. stories and passing mm-hmm. down your heritage is like – Exactly. The language is the – the like mode of transportation. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So globalization is also a huge reason that many languages are dying out because as more people come together and move to cities and away from rural areas, they adapt to the language that's predominantly spoken in those areas. Mm -hmm. So Frederico Andandre, who is the co-founder of a project called WikiTongues, which is a project to make the first public archive of every language in the world. Very cool. That is super awesome. Um, He said, most languages die today not because of abject or outright persecution, though this does happen on occasion, but rather because they are just made unviable. Hmm. So like I said, it's just urbanization really forces these diverse rural and coastal communities to migrate and move to these new communities with the predominantly spoken language there. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to get into a real life, really famous example of a language that like died in real time in 2008. Yeah. So this happened in Alaska. And so just to preface this, since it happened in Alaska, obviously in the United States, the U.S. is home to so many endangered languages from Hmm. Native Americans. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Obviously, there are so many different Native American tribes with so many different diverse languages. So another reason for that is also in the 1950s, Thousands of Native American children were forced 
to surrender up their native languages when they were put into boarding schools. So that really got rid of a ton of languages and a ton of people who would have passed on those languages. And even in a recent survey, it was found out that of the hundreds of languages that were once spoken in North America through indigenous peoples, only 194 of them remain. And of these, only 33 of them are spoken by both adults and children. So Wow. So they're just not getting passed on. Yeah. So that is a huge amount that's really in danger of just Mm. being gone. So- Like I was saying, the woman was Chief Marie Smith-Jones, and she was the last full-blooded EAC and the last person fluent in her native language when she died in 2008 in Anchorage, Alaska. So the EAC are a Native American indigenous group from south-central Alaska by the town of Cordova. So they are a saltwater fishing people, and by the 21st century, only 50 EACs remained. Oh, wow. Which is a very small amount. So a lot of that was due to smallpox and influenza tearing through their nation, which also killed some of Chief Marie Smith-Jones' siblings. So that's part of why Mm. she was one of the last ones. So she was born in Cordova on May 14, 1918, and she grew up on Eyak Lake where her family had a homestead. And she ended up having nine kids with her husband, who was a white fisherman from Oregon. But none of her kids learned the language because it was frowned upon to speak anything but English. Mm -hmm. Typical. So she, yeah. So that's been a theme as we've been seeing. (laughs) Typical. A white man. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. White man. No. (laughs) So she made the decision for them to not learn EAC due to the pain that she had endured as a child Mm -hmm. when she, where she said she learned to see that bilingualism was not an asset, but it was actually a detriment to her. That is so sad. I know. And she was told that Yak was a useless language, Ugh. which is devastating. That is. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. So as she got older in 1992, her sister had died and that marked her as the last fluent speaker of the language. So during her life, she was a fierce advocate for indigenous people's rights. And she even spoke at a UN conference on indigenous people's rights, which is pretty awesome. And in an interview asked by Elizabeth Colbert of The New Yorker on how she felt about her language dying with her, this is what she said. How would you feel if your baby died? If someone asked you, what was it like to see it lying in the cradle? Which is just devastating. Like, I, I truly can't imagine that feeling of being like, I am the last person to ever fluently speak this and to have nobody to speak to yeah in my language yeah in your like native language Mm -hmm. I can't imagine how isolating that would feel oh yeah and just how her describing it like how would you feel if your baby died like seeing it laying in the cradle Mm -hmm. like that is just so oh devastating I'm surprised that she was so passionate about it that she didn't teach her kids the language well so she this was later in her life. So she oh, said she came to afterwards. regret the decision. Oh. Yeah, she came to regret the decision to not teach her children the language. Mm, that is so sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even though she died, her language is actually super rich within the academic world because, I mean, this made it a very popular thing. Like, mm-hmm. this is the last living person to speak a language. 
So Michael Krauss, who was the founder of the Alaska Native Languages Center, worked with her to document the language. So they had video and audio recordings of the language, transcriptions of ancient stories, and a hand-typed dictionary that has over 3,000 pages of wow. words from the language, That's which awesome. is incredible. Thank God someone put in the work to make sure that, and like, thank God she advocated for that so that we have that record. Yeah, so I think Michael Krauss died. Um, I think it said 2019, but the Alaska Native Languages Center is continuing to do that and it has done that with a lot of other Alaskan languages. That's awesome. So that's, yeah, that's really good. And so on the opposite end of what I was just talking about, there are times where actually people come together to resurrect a dying language. And another United States example of this is it's the Hawaiian language. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. So on just some background, on January 16th, 1893, U.S. troops invaded the Hawaiian kingdom without just cause. They did it illegally. And that led to a conditional surrender by the Hawaiian kingdom's executive monarch. And the U.S. ended up illegally taking over the Hawaiian government. Mm -hmm. So because of this, obviously, lots of changes came in. And the Hawaiian language had become banned from school instruction in 1896, very shortly after, and banned in almost all public spaces. So English obviously quickly replaced the Hawaiian language. When languages like are banned or like when people are frowned upon for not speaking English natively, it just blows my mind how like, how have people justified in their head that the script can be flipped that like, these people, I'm trying to like think of the right way to word this, but like being bilingual is so cool. And like, yeah, you have to be so smart to be bilingual. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are like trilingual, like, you know, who speak so many languages fluently. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's just giving off like, I'm so insecure that I only know one language that like <laughs> I'm banning your language. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think it's really just, it was to eradicate culture Mm -hmm. and that since language is like i said such a cornerstone of culture just like takes out the whole culture and it's yeah that it's yeah so they just want to eradicate that culture and assimilate Mm -hmm. it into what they think is the proper right culture which is terrible yeah so after obviously english like i said quickly replaced hawaiian and in the 1970s only 2000 native hawaiian speakers remained and most of those speakers were over 60 years old so from what we've learned earlier it was on the path for extinction so around that same time in the 1970s a group of advocates launched immersion schools for teaching the hawaiian language a hawaiian radio program and an island-wide movement to resurrect the language. That's awesome. So this radio program was started by a man named Larry Kimura, and that was what really kicked off. That was like a huge part of the revitalization of this language. So he started this radio program out of a tiny studio on the ninth floor of a Waikiki office building, and he began interviewing all of the native language speakers he could find and was broadcasting it to people across the state. So when his show began on the air, there really weren't that many places to formally learn the Hawaiian language or even learn it as a second language. So this was like 
crazy for him to be doing over the radio. And that really sparked people's interest in learning the Hawaiian language and seeing that it was endangered. And they saw that as a sign that their culture was slipping away from them. Mm -hmm. So in the mid 80s, advocates also pushed for getting the Hawaii's Department of Education to allow them to create Hawaiian language immersion schools, like I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. which they succeeded in creating. And now today, they have grown to 21 Hawaiian language immersion schools throughout the islands. And they serve over 2,000 students. And they're all young students learning Hawaiian language. That's so cool. Which is incredible. So this is like such a great example of how people really came together because today, now more than 18,600 people speak Hawaiian just as fluently as they speak English. That's Compared to 2,000 that spoke it not that long ago. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And I think it's even on like Duolingo. Like it's- It is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. It's on Duolingo now too. Wow. That's awesome. Which is so cool because I mean, that probably is going to bring in even more people to learn it. Mm -hmm. So some people, I'm going to say dumb people, might ask- Why is it even important to keep languages alive? And why does it matter if languages die out? To those people, I say, (laughs) yeah, that's what I say too. But I'm saying it so I can get into my next part. So so like we've been saying this whole time, languages are such an essential part of culture and people's identity. So losing languages means losing an entire portion of communities and a part of people's culture. And as a language begins to die, that kind of is the first step of that culture is beginning to die as well. Languages are also a way of seeing human heritage. So you actually mentioned this earlier, which I was like, oh my God, she's so smart because I'm going to (laughs) talk about it in a second. But um, since writing is relatively new in the human history, Mm -hmm. language is often the only way to convey songs, stories, poems, So an example of that is the Iliad, which was an oral story before it was even written. So that could have been lost if that language was lost. By the way, written systems, like people actually writing, actually only exist for one third of the world's languages. So two thirds of these languages are only spoken. That's crazy. Yeah. So if we if they die, that's it. Like that they are only spoken. They don't really have a written counterpart. Wow. So Language is also a way of interpreting the world around us, and it's about gaining this ancient knowledge that has been passed down for generations. So that could include information about geography or zoology, math, navigation, like, you know, so many different things. Um, Just another example is the Cherokee language. It was a language born thousands of years ago, and in those years, it was inhabiting southern Appalachian Mountains, and there are words for literally everything, like anything that can exist, like berries, stems, plants, everything in that region that we might not have words for and we might not even know about. So oftentimes those names too, like how they name them can convey what kind of properties they might have, whether it's edible or poisonous or even might have some medicinal value. Hmm. Super interesting. Which is cool to think about. So in a quote from David Harrison, chair of the linguistics department at Swarthmore College, he said, Different languages provide distinct pathways of thought and frameworks for thinking and solving problems. So part of this is going back to the Cherokee language. Unlike English, it is a verb-based language rather than noun-based. And those verbs can be conjugated in 
a ton of different ways based on like who and how they're acting upon. So that can give like a ton of different meaning to things that we might not have. Like I said earlier, giving properties to an object that we might not know about. So depending also on the suffix, this is bringing it back to like elementary school because I literally was like, what the heck is a suffix? I already forget. It's the part before the word, right? Yep. Nice. No. No, that's no, perfect. I think it's suffix is at the end. Yeah, so speakers can indicate whether a noun is towards or away from them, uphill or downhill, or even upstream or downstream, just by the way that the word is conjugated and depending on the suffix, which is wild, which just has so much more meaning. It's it's very different than in English, how we, we don't have that kind of thing. So I'm going to end it out with a quote from Tom Belt, who is a native Oklahoman, and he is from the Cherokee Nation himself, and he's trying to revitalize the Cherokee language. So he said that an elder once told him years ago, it's all well and good that y'all want to do this in reference to revitalizing a language. Mm -hmm. But remember, they didn't take it away overnight and you're not going to get it back overnight. Kind of sad to end it on, but also I think it just really shows how important it is to keep these languages alive right. while they're still alive and not to ostracize people for their different languages that they speak and exactly i think it's just an important worldview in general to take an approach of learning to life mm-hmm. and not fear of somebody having a different language than you and having a different culture than you and of just like you said wanting to learn more about mm-hmm. it and respecting that culture and how much meaning it has behind it well and i think that's kind of part of this podcast too is like not we're not trying to do anything like major profound yeah but it's like we are people who love learning and it's like that's one thing we we just want to share yeah we We just just want to inspire other people to embrace exploring things that you want to learn more about and embrace like learning yup so yeah so that's endangered and dead languages. I thought it was pretty cool. That is super interesting. I think there, there are like, I have probably like 40 sources on this because there was just so much about it and so much on like all, I mean, there's so many different languages that are endangered and there's so many different people trying to revitalize these languages. So it's really cool. That is cool. I get really sad when I think about history that's lost because Mm -hmm. it's just you never get it back and it's so cool to learn about kind of what shaped the modern world yeah Um, and also when you were talking about it it made me think of the movie arrival did you ever see that movie yeah with amy adams wait yes that was so it's good such a good movie yes that's probably one of my top 10 movies i okay now i want to watch that right actually now that i'm really thinking about it you should it's so it's such a good movie and um like i went into it totally thinking it was just gonna be like a normal like alien invasion movie but it kind of explored that whole idea of language and when you were talking about verb-based languages versus noun-based languages Mm -hmm. and like that language in that movie was a time-based language whoa yeah so it's just interesting that was such an uncalled for noise i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) it's giving <laughs> I just didn't. I don't know why I said it. Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> but it's just so interesting to think about how your whole perspective of the world can change based on your language. 
Mm-hmm. And the way that oh, yeah. you express yourself and the way that you communicate with the people around yep. you. It's such a part of I- your identity. Yeah. It's really just like a core of humanity. So. So I have to ask you the question. Well, I was actually going to transition myself. I know, but see, you always do this. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Ask me the question. How'd you learn your topic this week? Well, I was inspired (laughs) by, um, there was a presentation at work that like, sometimes we just do these like casual presentations that don't really have anything to do with work. And one guy mentioned that he took a trip to England and found a book about King Richard III. And it was called, I think it was called like Finding Richard or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so then I looked up the book just because whenever someone mentions a book, I always look it up. And reading the little summary of the book, I was like, wait a minute. This would be such an interesting topic because I had never heard of this. Wait a minute. Wait a dang minute. But it's actually super timely because there's a movie that just came out on Friday literally about this topic. Yeah. When you told me about it, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Then you're like, a movie just came out about it. And I was like, just kidding. I saw a TikTok about what you're talking about. (laughs) But I don't know, like, any of the details about it besides just the, like, snippet of what the movie was about. So I really don't know any of the background about him. So the movie that just came out is called The Lost King. And oh, yeah. So it's about this, and I haven't seen it yet. I read a couple of reviews while I was doing my research, and it kind of sounds like the movie isn't super accurate, obviously, because it's, like, a dramatized version of the events. So hopefully I can give you a more accurate portrayal, but then I'll go see the movie and I'll let you guys know what I think. Give it to me, sis. Let me hear the accurate portrayal. Let's get into it. And also, I think this is pretty interesting because both of our topics this week have to do with history that's been lost. (gasps) Yeah. Look at us. We accidentally picked a theme. I know we did. All right. So let's talk about King Richard III, not Henry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... King Richard III was born on October 2nd, 1452 in Northamptonshire, England. He was the fourth son of another Richard, who was the third Duke of York, right at the tail end of the medieval period. Got it. So that's what we're talking. This is like our context of the time period. This is like going to be very convoluted. I'm going to really try my best to talk through it. But also, I found family trees that I'll post on Instagram. So if you want to follow Ooh. along while you're listening, I'll make sure to have those posted as soon as the episode is posted so that you can follow along on the tree if you need to. So his dad was Richard, the third Duke of York. So I'm going to refer to him as Richard York from now on to okay. keep them straight. <laughs> I'm going to have to back it up again. So I'm going to refer to King Richard Third as King Richard Third, But obviously, when I'm talking about his background, he doesn't become king richard the third until he's crowned so he's just richard the third right not even because the numbers after the name are only to distinguish between different kings kings. so you don't become the third or like the fourth or whatever until you become the king and that's only because you don't have a last name when you're a king okay when you said that because when you said his dad was king richard the third of york or not he was the the third duke of york (laughs) Yes, because when you said he was the third, and I was like, that's not only fucking stupid, he would be the fourth. Like, (laughs) this is where it's getting very confusing. So it's not historically accurate, but for the clarity of the podcast, 
I'm going to keep referring to King Richard III as King Richard III even before he becomes the king. And his dad, I'm going to refer to as Richard York. So his dad was Richard III, Duke of York, who was a royal descendant and the most powerful nobleman of his time. His mom was Cecilie Neville, who came from the most politically prominent and well-married house of the time period. And so basically, Richard III was the biggest Nepo baby of his time. (laughs) because he was just born into a super good family and since he was the youngest boy of his family he basically had no significant future ahead of him that they thought oh foreshadowing he was born before the war of the roses but basically most of his childhood and his whole life was taken up by the war of the roses and we're american obviously so maybe british people know this a lot better but i hadn't even heard of the war of the roses before I was just going to say, I have no idea what that was, but I wanted to see if you were given a background. It was basically a series of civil wars during this kind of like tail end of the medieval period for the crown. And let me tell you, this is like House of Dragon in real life. So. (laughs) Okay. When you said family tree, I was literally thinking of when I would watch Game of Thrones and House of Dragon, looking up the family trees just to follow along everything that was going on. As I was reading this, I was like, wait a minute. Did George R.R. Martin literally just copy this family in The War of the Roses? Because House of Dragon, it's like, reminds me exactly of House of Dragon. So mm-hmm. basically, both the Lancaster and York families claimed the throne because they both claimed that they were descended from Edward III, who was not the current king of the time. He was the king right before the current king. The Lancaster and the who family? And Yorks. Lancasters and Yorks. Is the Yorks... Our guy's family? Yes. Okay. The current king at the time that we're talking about is Henry VI. And the king right before him was Edward III. And so both of these families were claiming that they were descendants of Edward III. And so that okay. they could claim to take the throne when Henry VI um, like passes away or gives up the throne. Does he have no kids? Um, He does have kids. So both of these families were fighting to be basically the successors of the throne after Mm -hmm. Henry VI. Um, Because also, you got to remember, this is medieval period, so everything's really tumultuous. Even if someone has kids, kids don't live to be adults. So you need to have this like line of succession in place. And so these two families, the Lancasters and the Yorks, were fighting for this line of succession to be their family. Okay, that makes sense. So the Lancasters occupied the throne since 1399. So they basically said, we have the throne. It's ours. And Henry VI, who's the current king at the time, mainly managed his kingdom through his council. So everyone around him, especially his family, was fighting for power over the council because that was basically who determined who was going to be the next rulers. So wait, if they were... If they've had the throne since like 13, whatever you said. 1399. 1399. How is the current guy, Henry, how is he not part of their family? I think he is part of their family. They're all, it's also all inbreeding. They're all cousins. They're all incest. Yeah, it's I literally, forgot about. They're all cousins. So they all come from the same Edward III guy. Okay. So Henry VI also had many bouts of quote unquote mental disturbances which Richard of York, a.k.a. Richard III's dad, was named his Lord Protector. Ooh. And so that just added to like his claim just got to, an in. to the throne. So 
Let me break this down. Here's how I'm picturing it. Basically, Henry VI, he is king during peace times and doesn't really do much. And he's mostly just controlled by his cabinet, which leaves a void for power grabs. Very much like Viserys Targaryen and House of Dragon, if you watch House of Dragon. And then Richard York, he's like the hand of the king. So he can be like in his pocket basically mm-hmm. controlling him because okay. he was made the lord protector so is that kind of the same thing as hand of the king in house of dragon and lord protector game is basically thrones? the equivalent of okay. hand of the king okay. and so if you're thinking about it like game of thrones basically richard the third is like alicent where it's like he's the kid of the hand of the king and so like his dad is like trying to itch his way into power through okay. the king okay So this War of Roses is going on and Lancastrian army surprises and kills Richard of York. So that led his oldest son, also named Edward, to take role of leader of the family. So that's King Richard III's older brother takes his role as leader of the family. And Richard III ends up hiding out until his family gains wealth and power again since the dad just got taken out. And at this point in time, he was only nine years old. When he goes into hiding. Whoa. And his older brother takes over the family. That's very young to be put into hiding. So Edward IV defeats the Lancasters and becomes King Edward IV in 1461, making Richard a prince. So since Richard didn't really have any direct line to the throne, he kind of just focused his time on becoming super rich. And his road to becoming super rich was kind of messy. Like when his in-laws died, he claimed almost all of his wife's inheritance And he also approved charges of treason against his brother, George, and gained all of his brother's inheritance, too, after his brother was executed. So he got super rich, very sketchy ways, though. And also lots of family infighting happened. But ultimately, Edward IV, Richard's older brother, stayed on the throne and he unexpectedly died, which left the throne to his son, Edward V, who was only 12 years old at the time. Oh, my God. And Richard... The third was designated his Lord Protector. So he was basically hand of the king Mm -hmm. to this little 12 year old kid who was his nephew. How old was he at this point? Oh, I honestly don't know. Um, That's fine if you don't know. I think at this point he was an adult. But also, like I said at the beginning, the context is it's medieval times. Richard only lived to be 35. So all of this is happening. I think his brother lived to be even younger. People are taking over families as teenagers. I actually think I read that maybe at this point, Richard was around 16, I think. Okay. But so, I mean, at that point, that was an adult. Yeah. So Richard staged a coup and seized both Edward V, his nephew, and his nephew's half-brother, Lord Richard, and both of those princes died under mysterious circumstances, which left Richard III to take over the throne. Yeah, right, mysterious circumstances, my ass. They were called the princes in the tower because basically Richard III just had them locked up in a tower and he claimed, I don't know what happened. They just died. They disappeared. Oh, and they were so young. He was like 12. That's really sad. Yeah, and I think his half-brother was even younger because he was, like, the one who was the oldest who inherited the throne. Oh, that's awful. So why did he do that? Why he Why did that? he take over the throne? There was thought to be, to be three reasons. That was the first one, personal ambition. The second one was self-defense. So he was, when his brother died, he was basically scared that his brother's in-laws 
were going to try to claim the throne because mm-hmm. their like grandson was taking over the throne. Mm-hmm. And so it was thought to be a move of like self-defense that like in order to keep his family line in succession for the throne, he would kill off other families claims to the throne. So the third reason that he was thought to have taken the throne was that he thought it was his duty because he thought that the princes were illegitimate since Edward IV was betrothed to Lady Eleanor Butler, but instead married Elizabeth Wideville. So he thought because he did that, that meant like he was originally supposed to marry her. So that would have given a a legitimate line. Yes. So in that time period, betrothal was just as legitimate as marriage. And so being betrothed to someone else and then marrying someone different makes your kids illegitimate with your with your actual wife. That's so because your betrothal is considered like just as much of a commitment, like probably under God or whatever the like, like specific setups that they had back then. And also during this time period, well, I think even modern day, I don't know, just kidding. I don't know about modern day, but like The whole lore around the royal family is that they were chosen by God. So Mm -hmm. his mindset would be, if you're an illegitimate kid, God didn't choose you to be the ruler. So it would be your duty to take them out. Mm -hmm. But there's also not really super concrete evidence that this betrothal even existed. And it's kind of convenient because Eleanor Butler was dead by the time that Richard III took the throne. So there was no way of like fact checking it, basically. Right. He could have just claimed that his brother was betrothed. You know the thing? Source. Just trust me. Just trust me. That was kind of him. That was his sources. Just trust me. Just don't question it. (laughs) So there was just kind of like speculation that he made up that whole betrothal to seem like he wasn't a bad guy. He's like, oh, I'm just trying to like protect the throne. Like I didn't just kill these 12 year olds for nothing. It's for an important reason. Don't worry about it. So now let's get into how he actually was as a ruler. So he tried to be cool. Um, He abolished forced gifts, which is also called a benevolence tax. Wait, what? It's called forced gifts or benevolence tax. And it's basically like an additional tax that you act like, oh, it's so nice. You're just like giving me a gift because you appreciate the throne so much. But it's actually a tax that you're forcing people to give you. Oh, like a tip. Yeah, like a tip. So that was a thing before him and he abolished it oh but eventually he ran out of money because he was trying to fund an army because france was trying to invade and so he had to bring it back which was super unpopular and made him very unpopular even though those taxes were a thing before he was king anyways he also removed all of the leadership in southern england and replaced them with his own supporters because he was from the north and so he was trying to like replace everybody with his supporters Mm -hmm. And so the Southerners saw him as a tyrant. And eventually his only son and wife died, which left him with no heir. Whoa. This like super weakened his role as king because he attempted to remarry his niece, aka the sister to the two kids that he killed. Oh, he was, they were, she was probably (laughs) like, um, fuck you, uncle. Like, (laughs) no thanks. As she should. Yeah, this was blocked by his supporters. Because Good. even though there was a ton of incest at the time, they were like, that is too much incest. They were like, you know what? We'll take sister and brother, but uncle and niece, not today. No, thank you. No, thank Not you. on my watch. <laughs> and there was a rumor that he had poisoned his wife because she was too old and couldn't give him a second son to replace Jesus his son guy. that died. So like- A lot of blood on his hands. At the time, there was a ton of propaganda around him. 
presenting him as a murderer, a betrayer, a tyrant, a committer of incest. And his history is extremely hard to tack down because in general, a rule of thumb is history is written by the winners. And yeah, true. Everything that is really well documented about him was written by the people who hate him. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of hard to tell like what's real, what was a rumor, you know, and even to modern day, people still argue about him. And there's like people in England who are really big supporters of Richard III. And there's people who still really hate him. That's so interesting. This was like 500 years ago. Yeah, more so, like more than that. That's crazy. So... The South rebelled against him and recognized Henry Tudor as their king instead because Henry Tudor. Hey, was kind of the, the Tudors the wasn't that a sh- wasn't that a show? Yep. So we'll get to that. Okay. Richard III basically wasn't able to defeat Henry, but he did end up exiling him to France, which was a bad move because Henry then gained professional mercenaries who ultimately ended up beating and killing Richard III in battle. Oof. And so he died at 32. So I actually he said 35 himself. earlier, but it oh, was only 32. 32. Yeah. And he only ended up reigning for 25 months. So for him to that be such it? a big historical figure, his reign was like just years. over two years. And he was only 32. He was like two years older than me. And Whoa. all this shit happened. And also he had the audacity to say that his wife was like too old. Too old? <laughs> she was probably 30. Yeah. <laughs> You spinster. So Richard's battered body was brought back to the nearby town. Oh, he had a battered body? After he got killed. Oh, oh. Brought back to the town of Leicester, which was just the closest to where he died. And it was handed over to the friars of like the local church. And it was just dumped into a small grave at Greyfriars Church. And that was his end. And like you said earlier, so he was defeated by Henry Tudor, who later had become Henry VII. That was basically the start of the Tudor era. Mm -hmm. and the second henry to come after him was henry the eighth aka the one with all the wives that everyone knows about so that was was the start of the tudors yeah wow and the tudors include henry the seventh i just i one of my like weird history obsessions is the tudor period and so that includes like henry the seventh henry the eighth and it ends with um queen elizabeth the first which is henry the eighth's daughter wow so a little bit about richard the third's legacy So Thomas More was a Tudor humanist scholar, and he described Richard III as little stature, ill-featured of the limbs, crooked back, his left shoulder much higher than his right, hard-favored of visage, malicious, wrathful, envious from before birth and ever forward. And that's kind of the image that stuck of him. And to give context, Thomas More, the guy who said this quote, was eight when Richard died. So he like never really interacted with him in person. And he was a Tudor scholar. So he was hired by so the there guys could who be killed. A lot of, yeah, there could be a lot of bias in how they're describing him. Well, because exactly. I looked I looked up, obviously, just Richard III, just to see what he looked like. because And it looks like there's a bust or like a recreation of his face. And he doesn't look that bad to me. The recreations are like accurate to his skeleton since his skeleton has been found. Mm -hmm. And so that's like most likely what he actually looked like. But yeah, he is painted as super ugly and you should look up the Shakespeare portrayal of Richard III. Wait, yeah, he has a huge humpback. Yeah, Yeah, tell me how that compares. (laughs) So Shakespeare's play, that's really famous, was based Mm -hmm. on the Tudor historians, which doesn't really show Richard in a great light because like I said, History is written by the victors. And that's kind of the image that really stuck when Shakespeare wrote about him. 
So Richard III died an unloved king. He was humiliated in death and his body was tossed naked into a tiny grave. And that's how he went out of this world. Wow. (laughs) His existence might have been completely forgotten if it wasn't for the Shakespearean play, The Tragedy of Richard III, Mm -hmm. which, like I said, was written based off of the Tudor historians remembering of Richard III. And that was obviously not good. Yeah. So now let's get into the discovery of his body. Let's do it. The Tudors feared that Richard's burial site would become a rallying point for anti-Tudor people. And Mm -hmm. so his location where he was buried was kept a total secret. Only like the Tudors really knew. Wow. And when Henry VIII created the Anglican Church in the mid 16th century, England broke off away from the Vatican and England's Catholic missions were dissolved. So the church that he was buried at was taken apart stone by stone, and his grave was lost when that church was taken apart. What? Yeah, because Richard III was kind of the last Catholic king. So when, a, like, you said he was buried at the church, so, like, does that just mean in a cemetery behind it or, like, within yeah, at the, the No, at the cemetery. Okay. okay. But, like, that was associated with this Catholic church. And so when Henry VIII dissolved the Catholic church, all of the Catholic missions got dissolved too, and their churches actually got torn down. Okay, so then it was just like a cemetery, but they probably like got rid of gravestones and stuff since it was all Catholic. Yep, exactly. So that was when his burial location was totally lost to history. Gotcha. The Richard III Society was founded in 1924 to, quote, strip away the spin, the unfair innuendo, the Tudor artistic shaping and lazy acquiescence of the later ages and get to the real truth whoa yeah they were like you know what we ain't buying this shit yep so this society claims that richard iii was actually the one who instituted the system of bail and the presumption of innocence before proving guilty and he was also a champion of the printing press so they were like he actually did a lot of really cool stuff that we still Mm -hmm. use to this day in his 25 months as king somehow exactly he got shit done (laughs) so one member of the richard iii society philippa langley really wanted to get to the bottom of finding where he was buried and finding Mm -hmm. his skeleton um, because she believed that finding the skeleton would provide a lot of truth as to who he really was and shed some light onto like the positive aspects of him as a king because the people Mm -hmm. in this society wanted to get to the truth. Just like demonized him, yeah. Oh, well, I mean the people before (laughs) demonized him. Yeah, but the people in the Richard (gasps) III society wanted to get to the truth of his history. Yeah. And part of that was finding his body. She went on a four-year research journey and ultimately decided that the location where she believed his burial was, was a parking lot that was owned by the Leicester Council. That's crazy. August of 2012, they began digging for his bones. What's the Leicester Council? It's just the, like the town hall of the town of Leicester. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it took them only three weeks of digging before they fully found the body. They actually, what I had read... I think was that they had found some of the bones within a couple hours, but they didn't realize what they had found and like didn't uncover the full body until three weeks later. That is crazy. Just under some parking lot, this king was found. And what inspired her was that painted on the parking lot was a big letter R. And she was thinking, how crazy would that be if he was buried here? Because the R like was for something was signage for something else, but she was residential parking or some random shit. Yeah. She was just like, how ironic would that be? 
And then that happened to be where he was. <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, that's like super simplified. She did a lot of research. Yeah. 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 I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah, like you said, she had four years of research or whatever. Yeah. But on February 4th of 2013, the University of Leicester confirmed that these were in fact his remains. So it got confirmed by scientists. Not only did it fit his physical description that was depicted in historical sources, aka his curved spine that was famous mm-hmm. for his like crooked walk Ooh, and yep. his uneven shoulders, which was a product of scoliosis that he had had since the age of 10. But also the DNA matched two descendants of the king very well. Wow. Yep. That is so crazy. One thing that we discovered too when the skeleton was found is that he was killed super gruesomely. So this is a quote from the Smithsonian Magazine about his body. He was felled by one of two vicious blows to the head, including one from a sword that nearly sliced off the back of his skull. The team found 10 wounds to his body total, including a humiliation stab wound to his right buttocks and several to his trunk that were likely inflicted after his death. There was also evidence that his hands had been bound. Holy shit. So they fucking hated this guy. Yeah. And killed him in the most horrible way. Oh, yeah. They just like kept kept hitting him. And he was also buried in a place of honor since it was at the church. But from the grave, they were able to determine that he was just dumped unceremoniously in a quickly dug and too small grave and without a coffin. So... They just threw his body in and were like, They really did not give a shit. That's crazy that even his supporters didn't do something like more for him. Well, he was killed in battle and they, the people who could get him away just kind of dragged his body to whatever church was close by because he was Catholic. And so they just were like, we need to get him to a Catholic church so he could be buried. Mm -hmm. And I think they just kind of hastily threw together whatever they could. Wow. To get and wouldn't you think there would be like a ceremony or something for when a king dies? But it's not modern day. This is medieval periods. He died in battle. There's a new king. It's a new family. It's just whoever's That's toughest. Crazy. I literally can't imagine just all of a sudden be like, oh, new president. Sorry. Oh, like, just oh. kidding. Another one. Just kidding. It's actually his son now. Yeah, <laughs> like literally like what well if you can imagine the peasants are probably just like oh whatever i don't give a shit about these royals <laughs> yeah they're, they're like, probably just like okay who gives a shit they're like okay yeah i'll give you my gift tax Ooh. yeah they're like okay next one next so in order to do this dig they had to get an exhumation license by britain's ministry of justice and that license dictated that they must bury the bones as close to where they found them as possible and they had to do it by august of 2014 how long after was that from when they found them? They started the dig August 2012. So they basically had two years. And so the closest location to his burial site was the Leicester Cathedral, which was already home to the King Richard Memorial. So it kind of made sense. Mm. But there was also a question of like, what type of service do you have for someone who already had a service during their original burial? And also what kind of service can you have in an Anglican church for a Catholic king who died before even the foundation of the Church of England. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, what kind of service do you even do? Like, what do you do for that? Yeah. Since he wasn't even the religion of this church. And it's literally a service for someone that died 500 years ago. Who already had a service. So it's kind of like, eh, this is weird. And then the city of York also put in a bid to claim his remains. And York sent letters signed by the Lord Mayor, city councils, civic leaders, and it was backed by academics and descendants of Richard III. And they sent those letters to the Ministry of Justice and the Crown 
claiming that the city of York should be his final burial site. Because Richard grew up just north of York and became the Lord President of the Council of the North there. So he has a lot of like historic ties to York. And his dad was like the Duke of York or whatever. Yep. So he also spent a lot of time and money in that city and he granted favors to the city while he was king. And York also claimed that Richard's, like, final wish was to be buried in York Minister Cathedral. No, hang on here. Let's be real. How did they frickin' know that? Well, yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) so this is a quote from Megan Rule, who was the spokesperson for the city of York at the time. She said, the city is very keen to have the man have his living wishes fulfilled. York people were loyal to him then and remain so today. Wow. So that was what she said. And then the city mayor, Pete Soulsby of Leicester, said in response, York's claim no doubt will fill a few column inches in the Yorkshire Post, but beyond that, it's not something anybody's taking seriously. The license was very specific that any interment would be at Leicester Cathedral. It's a done deal. <laughs> so basically, basically said, fuck you. Yeah, Leicester was like, here. nah. <laughs> They were like, um, it was found under our freaking parking lot. So maybe once you find a dead king under your parking lot, you can bury it there. Yeah. Then Professor Lynn Foxhall, who is the head of University of Leicester's archaeology department, said, you get these old guys here who are still fighting the War of the Roses. Wow. So even to this, like, not to this day, but until 2014, like, people were still fighting between, like, York and Leicester. that's crazy yeah who gets claim to things full circle ultimately in july of 2014 king richard iii visitor center opened up and in march 2015 his remains were formally reinterred in the leicester cathedral so he ultimately got buried in leicester wow and i also just want to say that philippa langley was not the first person to get close to finding his skeleton uh david baldwin a university of leicester tutor also proposed digging in the same general location. And his theory was taken and advanced by John Ashton Hill, who then ended up working together with Philippa Langley to kind of find the more precise location and actually start the dig. So she's the one who ultimately got credit, but there were a lot of people who helped like get to their this research point. ended up getting them there. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's King Richard III. So interesting. That is just so crazy to me that in a freaking parking lot, 500 years later, he was found. Yeah. And I looked up like pictures of the museum. It actually looks like a super cool museum. And you can see like the dig site. You can see Mm -hmm. like where his skeleton was. It looks like there's a lot of cool history there. And it's also just so funny to me that like even 500 years later, there has been so much battle over like what happened to his remains There's still so many, like, conflicting views on, like, was he a good guy? Was he a bad guy? Mm -hmm. The truth of the history is really still unknown. Yeah. And there's probably a lot of things that we just will never find out. No, because, like I said, a million times before, history is written by the victors. So probably all of the real records of what happened got destroyed and are never to be known, never to be found. And we only know really what the Tudor historians say and what we can determine from his body and his grave. Wow. Yep. Crazy stuff. Yeah. So I think that's it. End us out, baby. So that's enough distractions for this week. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at the easily distracted pod for more content picks and updates. If you have any topics you've been distracted by and you want us to do a deep dive on, reach out to us on Instagram. New episodes are posted every Wednesday. And until then, stay distracted.